carbon credits. Depending on who you talk to, you might hear them described as the next cash crop or a complete sham, or maybe a catalyst for more sustainable practices. I don't really see right now a large share of Midwest farmers actually extracting high profitability from these carbon programs, but I do see the potential for moving the needle towards more adoption of regenerative practices. Iowa State Extension economist Dr. Alejandro Plastina has studied 13 of these carbon credit programs, and I, for one, am surprised at how much they vary. Different carbon programs will come up with different amounts of carbon sequestered by the same practice, in the same field, under the same operator. And that's impossible to know before getting into the contract, I guess. The appetite for carbon offsets seems to be at an all-time high, but agriculture is not the only game in town. Forestry is cheaper, and if the value of carbon credits gets high enough, direct capture is an option. And eventually, if prices get high enough, industrial carbon sequestration and storage becomes profitable. Trying to make sense of the wild west that is carbon programs on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And before we dive into today's episode, I want to take just a moment here to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor for this quarter, which is Acres. Name a place, a single source where you can find land for sale, comparable sales, and easy to use maps. Can't do it? That's where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. You can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tool for saving and customizing maps and PDF report generation. If you're in the land business and need more than just the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management and fast valuations. It's all part of Acres mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. Check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. for free at acres.co. That's acres.co. And thank you very much to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now back to today's episode with Dr. Alejandro Plastina. I reached out to Alejandro when I was trying to sort of make heads or tails of the various carbon programs that have been popping up in recent years. Uh, particularly, I wanted to know what the differences were from these programs or if they were just kind of carbon copies of each other. And I found this report titled How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits in U.S. Agriculture. This report, which Alejandro and his colleagues put together, really is one of the best resources I found. Uh, and the first thing you ought to know before we dive in here is that there are a lot of differences between the carbon programs, so much so that we're not going to tease apart every individual difference of every program. We're going to capture more of a high-level conversation here about the differences and what to think about and what to ask. Alejandro and his colleagues analyzed the terms associated with 13 of these carbon programs, and he joins me today to kind of share some of their key findings 
and big takeaways. If you want more detailed information to compare programs, I'm going to link to his report in the show notes. Uh, Do keep in mind, though, that it has been more than a year now since that report was created. So uh, some of the programs, some of the details of those programs have changed. But at the end of today's episode, I also ask Alejandro directly for his advice to farmers comparing programs, and he's got some great tips and resources for you there as well. All right, Dr. Alejandro Plastina is an associate professor and extension economist at the Department of Economics at Iowa State University. His area of specialization is agricultural production and technology with an emphasis on farm business and financial management. His research focuses on socioeconomic drivers of conservation practices, voluntary pest resistance management, carbon programs, and agricultural productivity. Prior to joining ISU in 2014, Dr. Plastino was senior economist at the International Cotton Advisory Committee in Washington, D.C. He graduated with a bachelor's in economics from the University of La Plata in Argentina, which they won the World Cup the day before this interview. So kudos to him for uh, still making it a priority in that time of celebration and a master's in statistics and Ph.D. in agricultural economics from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Alejandro is explaining what led him to this work focusing so much attention on carbon programs. Well, about two years ago, we started having discussions about how relevant could these carbon payments be for Iowa farmers in particular. So we decided to create a small team of people to focus on a few topics, and I guess I was the person who was most involved in this particular topic from the economics or business side. We looked into the role of futures markets on carbon programs. We looked at the role of labeling and the the measuring, reporting, and verification in supporting carbon trading and uh, More recently, we decided to inform our stakeholders about these different carbon programs and how they compare and uh, try to make clear that there are several types of carbon credits out there, not all of them related to agriculture and not all of them are for voluntary markets. So, you know, informing our stakeholders about the different paths into Uh, low carbon markets, that's what's been driving our team. And we are a small team of people here in the economics department that work collaboratively with soil scientists, agronomists, and so on. And we actually put together a report, an assessment on carbon opportunities for the state of Iowa. And this report was requested by the task force put together organized by the uh, governor of the state of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. And um, in this, you know, these two years you mentioned that you've been focused on carbon. From a farmer perspective, what do you think is the most interesting or, or sort of enlightening finding that, uh, that you found that you'd like to share with farmers as a result of the work you've been doing? Well, so far, the major result is that There are many programs out there that offer very different ways to participate in these voluntary carbon markets. And it's really hard 
to decide which one suits a particular farm better. So there are so many different variables in place in each program, and they are so different across programs. Anything from how they measure carbon, how they pay for carbon, sequestration or carbon removal, the length of the contract, the requirements to participate in the program, and so on. That is really, really hard to compare carbon programs before getting a full contract from each of your potential carbon initiatives, right? The initiatives you might be interested in. And that's why we came up with this report, How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits, where we collected data from 13 carbon programs and compared them across 24, 25 different attributes to help people you know, select a smaller set of carbon programs that they might be interested in and um, maybe go to some depth in, in learning more about those particular programs since there are so many out there getting to a subset it's a good first step, basically. Absolutely. I was going to ask you what the the most significant differences were from one program to the next, but it sounds like, from what you're saying, there's just a lot of differences. I mean, there's just a ton of points of differentiation all along the way. Most certainly, yes. If anything, I would say they are similar in the sense that they tend to accept the same types of practices, what we call covered practices, uh, you know, cover crops, no-till or reduced tillage. Those practices are uh, accepted by most carbon programs as the main changes in practices to generate carbon credits. But besides that, there are all kinds of differences across programs. So everything from the agronomic standpoint, how these characteristic of additionality is measured or interpreted to the permanence of the carbon sequestration or removal to the contract length, how the credit is quantified, you know, how much carbon is sequestered by a specific practice in one field will differ depending on how the carbon removal is measured. So different carbon programs will come up with different amounts of carbon sequestered by the same practice in the same field under the same operator. And that's impossible to know before getting into the contract, I guess. So those are big questions uh, out there. You know, smaller questions have to do with whether there's agronomic assistance provided by the carbon program, whether Given that a farmer will implement a change in practices, that change in practice can be cost shared through some NRCS programs. So basically some of the USDA programs out there to help incentivize the adoption of conservation practices. From the government's perspective, there's no uh, limitation on whether you will use those new practices to produce carbon credits or not. But in some cases, some carbon programs do not allow stacking payments of the public programs with 
carbon payments from these voluntary private programs. So there are lots of things, different attributes that farmers need to be aware of before making decisions. It's kind of like trying to choose like a credit card, you know, or something like based on all the rewards and where you spend your money. And I mean, it's just so many factors. Are all of them offering cash payments? I know that was one criteria you had is payment currency. It looks like all of them are cash, unless I missed some. No, not really. So eventually you can turn all payments into cash, but there's one program that pays in tokens. So you can say it's a cryptocurrency, but it's own cryptocurrency. It's none of the cryptocurrencies available out there to trade in uh, typical platforms. This is a carbon removal token. Each token is called an NRT, a Nori carbon removal token for each ton of carbon removed. Nori, which is one of these carbon programs, will issue an NRT. And the farmer who owns the NRT can cash it by selling the token into the Nori trading platform to a buyer, or they can hold the token and wait for the price of this NRT token to go up and sell it at a later time and hopefully at a higher price. That's the only one I'm aware of that pays in something other than cash. Right. Are any of the 13 that you reviewed outcomes-based or are they all practices-based? Great question. So most carbon programs are outcome-based. So they pay farmers based on their performance and that is how much carbon they removed or sequestered or avoided putting into the atmosphere over a certain period of time, which is tied to the length of the carbon contract. So far, only one carbon program, Bayer Carbon, actually pays per practice. And I should say, out of the 13 programs that we analyzed, right? And it pays based on whether the practice is adding cover crops to a field or changing the tillage practice to no-till. And it varies by location, but it's usually around $6 per acre if a farmer adds cover crops to a farm or 5 to $6 per acre if they switch from conventional tillage to no-till or reduced till. The other program that pays per practice for some of the practices is agorocarbon. Agorocarbon pays for some practices related to reducing nitrogen. They pay per acre instead of per number of tons of carbon removed. So uh, as far as we know, they pay uh, $2.50 per acre per year for utilizing one of the four R's of nutrient stewardship. And that could translate into, well, different amounts based on the nutrient management program. Uh, And they also pay for reducing nitrogen application up to five cents per pound of nitrogen reduced per acre per year. So, so far they are the programs that pay per practice. Wow. 
And, you know, one, one of the things that, that stood out to me in reviewing this table is, is the length of terms, you know, how long you have to commit to one of these programs. In some cases, 10 years, 10 years might've been the longest term, but, uh, but in some cases, 10 years or perhaps more, I guess my question is, what's your sense from a farmer perspective of if it's worth all the trouble to, to go through and find the program that's right for them and to commit for them for 10 years, you know, is the payback enough? Uh, and is that something that you have looked at? Well, I have looked at the potential to generate carbon credits across all counties in Iowa through major changes in farming practices. And in some cases, the potential to generate enough revenue to justify from an economic standpoint the change in practices, it seems to be there. But, you know, there's a difference between the expected amount of carbon sequestration that is an average over a long period of time versus the actual realization on an yearly basis on the amount of carbon that is actually sequestered. And that depends on a number of factors, whether being one of the major ones, right? Like with any other crop, the carbon crop will depend on the realization of weather patterns and the history of practices in the field and the timing of the changes in practices and so on. So just to put a very simple example, if a farmer goes into a contract to plant cover crops every year for 10 years, let's say, and one year they have a very early winter and uh, the ground is frozen by the time they have to or they are able to go into the field with their machines, well, that cover crop might not be planted at all. Or let's say there's another year where they are able to go in to harvest the corn, soybeans, the cash crop, and uh, plant the cereal rye seeds if they are doing cereal rye as a cover crop. Well, what happens if growing degree days after planting the cereal rye seeds are not enough to actually help those seeds germinate? So even if the seed was planted, there's a chance that there won't be germination. And even if there's germination, there might not be enough biomass to sequester enough carbon in the fall or in the spring. So it really depends on several variables, the timing of the planting, the conditions of the soil at the time of planting, the number of growing degree days, in the spring, uh, in the, the time to germination in the fall and so on. And it might just happen that even after going into the cost of buying the seeds and planting the cover crops, the actual results in terms of carbon sequestration is too low, potentially much lower than the average expected number that uh, results from looking at the long-term averages. So. A long way of saying that there's a lot of uncertainty, even if you have some information about the expected or the average amount of sequestration for any particular farm, the actual amount of carbon sequestration might differ from that projected expected or average amount uh, by quite a bit. 
I only had access to the Comet Planner model that takes into account all the greenhouse gases. But there are so many other carbon programs that I have not been able to evaluate used by these carbon programs that it really makes it anybody's guess on how much carbon can be actually sequestered in any given particular year by a changing practice for these carbon programs. So the goal probably right now with current carbon prices might not be to make money for farmers out of these carbon contracts, but to help them move in the right direction of adopting more regenerative practices. And it might be that they are already close to breaking even using some public programs, you know, state or federal programs, or they might be able to break even even without those public programs. And having these carbon payments might bring them from the red to the black and generate enough revenue for them to be able to cover all the costs or most of the costs to switching to more regenerative practices. So I don't really see right now a large share of Midwest farmers actually extracting high profitability from these carbon programs, but I do see the potential for moving the needle towards more adoption of regenerative practices, maybe a little bit slower than what many people would like to see, but these are steps in the right direction. And this market, which I don't think there's a market right now, right? These uh, programs or initiatives are moving in the right direction. And uh, hopefully if the market solidifies and prices for carbon offsets go up, then there might be some profitability for farmers and larger scale adoption of regenerative practices. But it's a very dynamic system right now. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all, all that explanation because it makes a lot of sense where maybe it's not today, maybe it's not the next cash crop, you know, carbon is not the next cash crop, but it might be just enough to uh, lower the risk of changing practices for somebody who who wants to do that anyway, but just is looking to make the finances work. In the example that you mentioned of, let's say your cereal ride doesn't get established. So, you know, let's say hypothetically, the farmer's doing everything the carbon company is saying that they need to do to sequester carbon. Mother nature doesn't cooperate. Could we actually see a net negative, you know, a loss of carbon from the soil? And then does that get us back to the question you're posing earlier? Like what happens in that case? Do they pay money back? Is that possible that the farmer's doing everything they're supposed to do, but due to other factors, you know, the carbon cycle, we lose soil carbon? Hmm. Yes, and I would like to split that into two questions. So is it possible from a carbon model standpoint? The way carbon is measured is it relies on statistical and biophysical models, right? Um, so is it possible for these carbon models to actually generate an estimated amount of negative carbon sequestration? So basically putting back some carbon into the atmosphere? The answer to that is yes. If we look at uh, some results from the Comet Planner model, 
there are instances where planting cover crops in some counties would, on average, so I'm not saying that on rare occasions, but on average, generate a negative amount of CO2 equivalent sequestration. So that's one thing. Biophysically, uh, yes, that's possible. Then how that affects the contract between a farmer and the carbon program will depend on the specifics of the program and probably on whether the carbon release into the atmosphere was due to intentional or unintentional practices. So what I hear from the people I had the opportunity to interview in those cases where a cereal rye is not established, the penalty for the farmer would be simply to postpone the carbon payment until there's an actual carbon sequestration. So basically, if the whole carbon program was contract between the farmer and the carbon program was to have cover crops, well, in a year where the farmer plants the crop but doesn't get established, probably that year the farmer will not receive a carbon payment. The question is, who will bear the cost of buying the seeds and planting the cover crops? Well, that's probably contract specific. And, and in that case, if it happened because of mother nature, probably there won't be financial penalties to the farmer. Another question that I don't know how to answer is, what happens if there's a need to change tillage practices? For example, in a 10-year contract, a farmer signs to move from conventional tillage to no-till, but let's say that in this area of the farm, the farmer cannot treat a specific weed, let's say water hemp has gone out of control, and uh, the only way to deal with, with that specific weed is in basically tilling it and uh, destroying the entire plant and incorporating the plant into the soil. Okay, so there are reasons that might force a farmer to go back to conventional tillage. What happens if that reversal occurs in the middle of the contract, of a 10-year contract. Well, from a carbon perspective, that would result in a loss of carbon that was sequestered into the soil back into the atmosphere. So that's the carbon reversal. And the question that, again, I cannot answer is whether the farmer will have to face the financial penalties or economic penalties for that carbon reversal. Is there a clawback on the payments that the farmer has already collected on the previous years for sequestering carbon? And based on my limited knowledge of the carbon agronomic interaction, maybe up to 40% of the carbon sequestering the soil can go into the atmosphere with just one tillage pass. So that could be, you know, a great loss for the farmer if that ever happens. But that's, uh, I would say, on top of the uncertainty that we were addressing for the cereal rye 
if a farmer is trying to do cover crops. Yeah, no, that is such an important question to know before entering into one of these agreements, especially if you're going to be, you know, five, 10 years. That's a long time. You better know that before you sign on the dotted line. That's really important. You mentioned practice change and kind of a history of practices. There are a sub-segment of the farming population that has been doing, you know, no-till and cover crops for many years before the carbon markets, you know, kind of were a thing. All these platforms, do they all you know, require practice change, meaning if you've been doing this forever, you're not going to get rewarded for that carbon you've sequestered in previous years. Yes, yeah, so far, they, in order to produce a carbon offset, they all require additionalities. And that means that if it weren't for the carbon payment, then the practice would not have been implemented. So it requires a change in practice. There are some programs that allow for a look back period. So if the change in practice occurred recently, let's say over the last two or three years, then some programs will still allow that farm to participate in the carbon program. The other aspect is that not all of the carbon programs define additionality in the same way. So yes, there has to be a change in practices or there has to be something different done in the farm in order to participate in the carbon program and for a practice to qualify as additional. But in some cases, the additionality, the difference is measured against the farm's own history of practices. So if a farmer has been in no-till for the past 10 years, probably that farm will not qualify to generate carbon credits through reduced tillage intensity, although it may still qualify to add cover crops to the no-till system. But there are other carbon programs where additionality is uh, measured with respect to the typical practices in the area. That means that for this subset of programs, if a farm has been in um, no-till and cover crops for 10 years, but both no-till and cover crops have a very low rate of adoption in the county, then that farm is different from the typical farm in the county and would qualify to generate carbon credits by continuing the no-till and cover crop practices. So it really depends on the carbon program again. And with all these different definitions of, of things like additionality, which is you know pretty fundamental, and, and the differences in just how they choose to measure carbon, I mean, to me, that feels like it casts a little bit of doubt on the fact that anybody is sort of getting this right. Uh, I mean, do you get that sense? I would say that the fact that agriculture is one of the sectors producing the least amount of carbon offsets probably is showing to some extent the challenges that agriculture faces in terms of providing credible carbon credits. And I'm not saying that that's not possible, what I'm saying is that it's much easier to show additionality and permanence and realness and so on, the other characteristics that buyers want from these carbon credits, 
by changing practices in other sectors. Think forestry, for example. It's much easier to track the evolution of a forest over 30 years than evaluating 30 years of changes in annual practices. But it's not only forestry. Think renewable energy. Once a windmill is installed, then it's pretty straightforward to measure through a mechanic or electronic instrument how much energy is produced and uh, compare that energy to the energy produced by coal, for example, and calculate the difference in terms of lower carbon energy generated by the windmill. So it's not that agriculture cannot produce credible carbon offsets. It's only that it's more challenging. Um, There are more processes that need to be put in place and more information to track on a yearly basis to prove that a change in practices at the farm level has actually removed carbon dioxide or, or other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And that removal was credible and uh, it was additional and it was permanent. So there are other variables that probably don't carry such a weight when carbon offsets are generated in other sectors. But still, by the enormous extent of agriculture, I think agriculture has a big role to play if the buyers are interested in buying carbon offsets from this sector. And let me tell you, I also learned to some extent about the carbon models used to measure carbon sequestration in forestry. And uh, we all know that forestry carbon credits have been around for decades now. Well, those carbon credits still rely on a different set of carbon models. And these carbon models reach different results. And they don't converge on a similar amount of carbon sequestration per acre on the same farm. They take into account different variables, different scales of analysis, and they still don't converge. So I participated in a a conference and a workshop organized by the USDA in Atlanta, Georgia earlier this year on carbon models for forestry. And there were different groups of modelers trying to find a way to compare these models and to understand the differences. So to eventually be able to explain why they arrive at different results when measuring carbon sequestration at the forest level. So say this carbon modeling for agriculture and particularly for agricultural carbon is uh, much newer than forestry, or at least with the same interest that we've seen on these carbon models recently, right? So it's a much newer and much more recent set of models that hopefully we'll be able to, to converge to some more similar results as they are discussed more in depth and people make more use of it, of them, sorry, 
that are multiple models. I hear occasionally about carbon capture technology out there. Is any of that actually being used or is it still something that we're just hoping for in the future? No, there are multiple instances of direct carbon capture. And I say direct carbon, I should say direct greenhouse gas emissions capture in oil rigs, in biorefineries, the gases emitted by the combustion involved in the processes can be directly captured, uh, liquefied, and uh, into carbon dioxide or other gases and transported to a final storage place. And that's already occurring. There are multiple incentives for the industry to build more infrastructure that would sequester and store greenhouse gases directly into the soil in more permanent soil structures. And there are multiple incentives around the world to actually build direct carbon capture plants. Right now, the technology is um, not as cost efficient as desirable. So it's still very costly to do that. It's a great investment. And uh, it could be recovered on you know, very long-term contracts, but the technology is being explored for direct carbon capture. So plants that remove carbon directly from the atmosphere, those are already being built. They are in operation at a small scale, but eventually if the interest by investors, consumers, international leaders, local leaders, if the interest to remove carbon or reduce the carbon footprint or reduce the greenhouse gas footprint of different processes remains strong and probably grows, then there will be uh, economic incentives to generate more carbon sequestration, to generate revenue for those involved in greenhouse gas removal, and it will become more prevalent set of technologies. So I don't think there will be one technology dominating the entire carbon spectrum. There are at different price ranges, there will be different technologies leading the production of carbon offsets and insets. Agriculture is in between forestry and direct carbon sequestration. So at very low prices for carbon offsets, probably the cheapest way to produce those carbon offsets is through forestry at large scale. Then agriculture becomes competitive at higher price points. And eventually if prices get high enough, let's say $100 per ton of carbon, then industrial carbon sequestration and storage becomes profitable. And the scale for industrial carbon sequestration and storage is much larger than the scale possible with agriculture or forestry. So it's really a Goldilocks type of argument. The, the price has to be right for agriculture to be competitive, and the models, the methodology also have to be strong, reliable in order for agricultural carbon credits to, to work. Thank you for that. That's interesting. 
So it sounds like it wouldn't be such a bad thing for industrial carbon capture to come to fruition because that would mean that the value of the carbon has gotten to the point where it makes sense. And that's that's probably a good thing for those doing it in agriculture. One thing I think about with this is, you know, we're kind of creating an industry here that doesn't have to only relate to carbon. You know, we're sort of creating the infrastructure for a suite of ecosystem services, sort of a direct pipeline to incentivizing farmers for practice change. Would you agree with that? And do you think that, you know, that that is the future? I think there are many people rooting for that future. There are many companies developing programs to expand carbon payments to ecosystem services payments. But it will depend, in my opinion, it will depend on the demand for those types of services and the price of carbon and the reliability basically how much confidence or credibility is put on on those ecosystem services and the carbon offsets or insets but i i do know that there are many people out there looking at ways to promote the adoption of more regenerative practices and uh, those channels that you mentioned are uh, one of the main possible drivers of more regenerative agricultural practices. I know I'm at time, but before I let you go, anything else that you would just want to make sure you mention or uh, maybe a good way to sum it up is just kind of like, what's one thing you would want farmers to keep in mind before engaging in one of these programs? If anything, I would recommend people interested in exploring carbon farming to do their homework, to read as many reports as possible. I strongly recommend extension reports from the land-grant universities. And then after reading the reports, make a big list of questions. And there are some reports that help you create that that list of questions and uh, ask lots of questions to the representatives of the programs you might be interested in before signing any contract. Uh, And talk about the carbon program with the family, with financial advisor, legal advisor. Remember that the contracts are made by the attorneys paid by the carbon programs, the aggregators. So it's always in the best interest of those who pay for the contract, right? And and farmers need to be aware of that and uh, make sure that they have a good feeling about how to participate, the pros and cons, and the legal consequences if uh, everything goes as expected and if anything goes wrong. All right, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Alejandro Plastina for being on the show and sharing this expertise. What an interesting report uh, him and his colleagues put together titled How to Grow and Sell Carbon Credits in U.S. Agriculture. Link to that is in the show notes if you want more detailed comparisons of those 13 programs. And you could probably pick it up during the interview just for my questions and my reactions, but more than anything, this is just making me a little bit more skeptical about the whole thing, (laughs) about the validation here of like, if everybody's taking a different approach, certainly somebody is wrong, right? Uh, Certainly we haven't reached the optimal procedure with all of these. And it, it just 
it casts a little bit of doubt for me just kind of on the whole category not that it's a sham i don't believe that but that it's still very early days and all of us are really trying to figure this thing out and so when you're talking about 10-year commitments for something that is this sort of nascent I don't know if I if I were in that situation as a farmer, I think I, I would um, I, I would want to take my time. But but I realize there's also economics to to consider as well. So anyway, if nothing else, I hope you got some of the nuance of these various programs in today's episode and uh, that you will ask a lot of questions before entering into one of these types of agreements. Thank you again, Alejandro. Thanks, of course, to Acres for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.